The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Thank you very much, the Documentary Edge Festival. We've had some amazing guests with great stories, a couple to come. The story of the point of no return, and this is the story of the uh, big solo, it's a huge plane, solar powered, went around the world. Big stories behind it. I'll stop saying big. Uh, next up, though. Oh, man. Uh, not many people can say that they've testified against their father for murdering their mother after hearing it happen. This happened in 1990. But the story is... We can't tell you if it's resolved or not because that would be a spoiler. But it's a compelling thing. It's called Murder in Mansfield. You'll find out all about it after the commercial break. It's on at the Documentary Edge Festival. It's got a showing tomorrow, I think 4.30. Go see it if you possibly can. Um, you'll understand more about it after you've heard from the subject of the movie itself. Do you want a double ticket? Give us a bell now. 0800 844 747. Not just for that movie, but any that's not sold out pretty much, okay? Uh, you can go and see anything. A double pass, 0800 844 747. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. At the Documentary Edge Festival, a murder in Mansfield. It's a compelling thing. A son interrogating his father about the murder of his mother. For a scene setter, this was a few years ago, Collier, the son, was only 12 at the time. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The motive, prosecutors say, so he could move into that house with younger girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, who was carrying his baby. It was like seeing something out of a horror movie, only this was real. A Richland County jury watched gruesome. a gruesome videotape of Noreen Boyle's body being exhumed from a shallow concrete grave. The 12-year-old son of accused murderer Mansfield Dr. John Boyle finally took the stand. Will you tell us who you are? I'm Collier Landry Boyle. Did anything happen during the course of that night that woke you up? The immediate thought I had was something was wrong with my mother. I heard a thud, a little... Okay, could you describe this sound for okay. us? Okay, it was about this loud. Yeah, the young man testifying there at the age of 12, Collier Landry, and this is a story about him wanting to get to the bottom of why his father killed his mother and also how. We're not speaking with the director, and this is a real get. This is the subject of this documentary. Collier Landry is on the line from the United States. Hello, Collier. Hey, Graham, how are you? Good. Am I right? This documentary, you must have agreed to have this made, and it's quite intimate. Is it born of frustration? I don't know if you, you could say that it was born of frustration. It was born of more of a desire to do something with this story, to flip a negative into a positive, to kind of turn it on its head. This was a long-time project of mine. The genesis of this started shortly after the murder happened and as I was growing up and, you know, I really wanted to do something with the story creatively because I'm an artist and, and that's what I do. So I saw a film in 1999 called American History X, which was about the consequences of violence. I saw that movie and I said, you know, whoever did this film, 
I really want to do my story. Flash forward to almost 10 years later, I meet the producer of that film and we become friends. And I say, hey, I've got this idea for a project. I want to do a television series, a docuseries based upon the consequences of violence and the impacts on communities, secondary victims, especially in the States. We don't really, we kind of push everything aside. You know, mm. bad guy goes to jail, victim is dead, gavel hits, court case next. Okay. You know, we never really examine the consequences and the impacts that these things have. I feel that we're doing that now a little bit more because of things that are happening here, especially in the States, school shootings, you know, police brutality, things like that, that we're starting to examine impacts that are happening. But um, I said, you know, I want to I want to do this story. And the best thing is, is I have the pilot and I own it because it's about my life. And I went in and explained it to me. He says, this is a great idea. He's like, I think I have somebody who would be interested in this. And she has won two Academy Awards for documentaries. And her name is Barbara Koppel. Yeah. So that's how it all started. <laughs> Let's put people in the timeline uh, you were 12 at the time in court testifying against your father. When was that court case? It was 1990, and I testified at trial for two and a half days. Yeah. Heard the murder happen, and, you know, I knew my mother was dead the next morning, and 25 days later they found her body underneath his home that he had purchased to live in with his new girlfriend and new baby. Your mother was found buried underneath the concrete. Yes. You do recall the events of that evening as you attest to in court, but what was his uh, version of events that he put up in court? You know, came at him with a knife and then she left in the middle of the night and got in a car and drove away. There was never any confrontation, from my knowledge, in the courtroom, any admittance of a confrontation as far as pushing her or them getting into a struggle or anything like that other than her coming in and throwing credit cards at him. That was always his contention, was just this, you know, this maintenance of complete innocence. Did she leave the house then? Mm-hmm. Yes, she did. So I walked down the driveway. I ran back to the uh, table that sits there in the family room, put my glasses on and ran back again to see where she was going. What did you see? Uh, by the time I got there, I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. You know, the innocent man, whatever his story was, whether he was framed or whatever, you know, there's been a lot of shifts in that story over the past 26 years. Okay. He said she'd left. She left in a car. And he was defending this position in court when the body was in the basement. That's something that's got me scratching my head. Yeah. I mean, again, so without having any spoilers, yeah, he concocted a story and... I believe probably the first thing that you have to do when you're concocting this story is that you have to believe it first right? and convince yourself of it. My father was a very, very intelligent man. He was a doctor. He went to Penn. He graduated from Wharton. He was extremely intelligent. And I feel that he, well, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, somebody with high intelligence, high arrogance, uh, a bit of a narcissist, believes that they're smarter than everyone else in the room. So I believe that he felt that, he could just dupe everyone, dupe the police, dupe the court, dupe the jurors, dupe the judge, dupe the prosecutors, and dupe everyone and get away with it. I really, really believe that. You can't tell us what his theory was on how her body was found underneath the concrete? That I don't know. No, okay. I okay. Tell you that. I Not me. Know. Must have been somebody else. Aliens or something. Yes. 
police planted it there or okay yeah well i think we have the picture of this traumatizing scenario you seem so upright and with it at 12 years old in court what do you think when you look at yourself i hadn't seen any of this footage so the first time that i saw even though i was an executive producer on the project and this was all something that I had incubated for such a long time and then involved people into the project. I had nothing to do with the editorial process. I said, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to do anything. I want to watch it in theater, and that's it. And Barbara agreed. So when I was watching myself in the theater, I just was, I was, I haven't changed. I haven't changed. This is me. And I knew, I real. I, one of the things that these, these types of incidents do unfortunately is they force you to grow up overnight they really do because i lost everything i lost my family house dog toys sister everything was destroyed and i had to pick up the pieces and just focus and just i was very adamant about testifying the prosecution said you don't have to testify we have enough evidence i said there's no way you know, as a 12-year-old boy, I was, I was hell-bent on testifying because I wanted justice for my mother. I knew what happened in my heart, and I wanted to tell the truth, and I wanted the opportunity to do that. So when I watch myself, I, I just go, yeah, this is me. Just I've just completely grown up overnight, and I haven't changed since. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, as you can imagine. And uh, we shouldn't be suspicious that you're amplifying how close you were to your mother, it shouldn't matter neither, neither here nor there. But given the degree of how much your mother was your number one parent and the person that you loved so much, how the hell did this affect your life? You're an orphan. And in fact, I was an orphan overnight. I was with my mother 99% of the time, which seems to some people as an exaggeration, but my father was never around. He was having a lot of extramarital affairs, a doctor he was at the hospital and this that and the other but he was just not around and when he was he was not a very pleasant person to be around my mother would just take me everywhere she would go shopping she would go this i go to school she would put me in summer camp i i was always attached to her you know i i was as much her um <sighs> you know best friend as she was mine if you will the family that you were adopted yeah. to yeah i suppose we could say Here's one area where you were lucky. They seemed to be pretty cool. I was very fortunate to be adopted by the Zigglers. They were really good people, and they absolutely did the best that they could in very, very challenging circumstances. They took on a kid in a very small community and kept me in the community that I was from, and that was really admirable of them to step up and, and want to do that. It was challenging for them, and it was challenging for me growing up mm. because there was a lot of outside forces that I don't think at the time that they wanted to adopt me and that they did adopt me, you know, I was adopted at age 13. They didn't quite realize a lot of things that were going to happen as a result of their adoption of me. Reactions from the community, reactions from the school, from the principal, from people around. They, I think that they didn't really realize that, mm. but they stuck it out and, and, and we have a great relationship to this day. And since then, it's been 26 years of the dynamics between yourself and your father. No spoilers, but that, that's how long the story's taken to tell, really, isn't it? Yes, it has taken that long to tell the story. 
mm. and to tell it in a way that I feel benefits people. And I've tried to be as open and as honest and, and, j- and just an open book in the film and exposing all parts of my life. I've tried to break down all the walls to give the audience uh, the real me and the real and raw. My goal with that was to show people that you can come through extremely challenging circumstances. Sometimes the only way out is through. (laughs) And you've just got to put your head down and just get through it because it can be completely completely overwhelming. So I tried to show and expose a side of me and just be an open book for the camera and for the audience, most importantly, that they would be able to see and, and, and people can find solace in, in seeing how I, how I am now and exposed I become and, and maybe find some hope in their own lives when they're going through challenging circumstances. And that was definitely one of the, the biggest goals of this project. There's an exemplar moment of you being open in this documentary, Murder in Mansfield. In this movie, there was a moment when I recoiled. There is clear footage of the investigators exhuming your mother's decomposing body. You also chose to go to the police and see the photographs. We get to share that horror. Did you struggle with whether to include that footage? One of the very unique things in this documentary is there's nothing staged. There's nothing really planned. I I, kind of kept myself at a distance. I knew kind of what we were going to do, who we were going to talk to, but everything that you see unfold in front of the camera happens as it happens. So that moment that you speak of was real and raw, and Barbara was going to go down with the uh, the police officer to look at the case file, and she asked me right there in the kitchen, do you want to go? And I had never seen these photographs before. Never. I had never even seen the footage of the exhumation before. So when you see me in that police station, that is the first time I'm ever seeing this material. Hmm. It was a very, very powerful moment. Because it's ha- it haunted me for so long, what it could look like, what it was. Did it help? Did you think it was a good There's thing a- seeing, that, seeing that? Yes, I mean, this project has helped me immensely deal with everything that came with this. This was like the, the pinnacle of my life in dealing with this. And being able to have the catharsis of making something like this, I'm so fortunate because it helped me carry through and to have those opportunities and then to share those opportunities, which is even better, to share the vulnerability to the audience is really something that very very few people get to do in these circumstances. And, and, and exposing that vulnerability, it, it helped me heal. And that's, what, that's an amazing gift that came out of this. To have something like this happen to you, it's a pretty damn rare thing. Thank goodness. But unfortunately, it's not unique either. Have you spoken with anyone else in a similar position to you? Yes, especially since the film has been out in festivals. And it can range from their best friend's father killed their their best friend or something horrific that happened or molestation that they've experienced from an uncle or a parent. Things like that or just losing somebody that was very close to them. And just reached out and just said, we see you. And we look you up, or we see you on screen, and it just gives us hope. And I'm able to engage with those people, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have happen out of this, to help other people. That's the whole amazing thing of this journey of making this project. But 
Have you met anyone whose father has killed their mother? I have not yet. Okay. Never directly met someone yet. How is your sister? She's mentioned, but she's not part of this focus. I want to ask. I have not seen my sister since 1990. We tried to track her down. Our foster parents that ended up adopting her but did not want me, they completely removed her from my life, changed her name. Mm. You know, I tried to reach out to her, and I have never been able to track her down, never gotten a response. I believe I've called her, and she's answered, and she's hung up. Mm. It's been challenging. I think people need to know how old she was when this murder occurred. She was three. Right. Three. Okay. Three years old, and I believe that she... Well, you know, we do that in the film, so I won't, I won't spoil it. <laughs> no. It's a compelling watch, A Murder in Mansfield. We're not speaking with the director, we're speaking with the subject. Collier Landry, the executive producer as well. Oh boy, she's a watch and a half, and no spoilers, it does come to that moment when you confront your father in jail. With no spoilers, I'll just say, Collier Landry, thank you very, very much Thank you so much, Graham. Uh, very, very lovely to talk to you. I know what happened now because I spent yesterday at the police department looking at files and photos of mommy's lifeless body, half decayed. So I need you to tell me the truth for once. If you're like, look, she was spending too much money, she was doing this, and this is my plea to you to finally just come clean and just, for, for you, like... For you, not, not just for me, but for you, because your future is at stake, however long that is. Can you do that? Mm-hmm, yes. So what happened? A Murder in Mansfield, the documentary Edge Festival, Monday, tomorrow, 28th of May, 4.30 p.m. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Doc Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. At the Documentary Edge Festival, a remarkable feat. It took more than a year, but it may be landmark. In the future, we may look back on it as something kind of special. I think it's very dangerous. You know, we never have the story of those who got killed. We have to do it to demonstrate it works. So someone has to do it first. Someone has to try. The documentary's name is The Point of No Return, and it's the story of that solar-powered, preposterous machine that circumnavigated the globe just on solar power. And it's more than just the story of that feat in engineering. The makers of this documentary are with us. Thanks very much to the Documentary Edge Festival. Quinn Keneally and Noel Dockstetter, thank you for coming in. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, let's do the engineering thing first. This amazing wide-winged seabird, just solar-powered. Engineering the thing. Were there any templates that these people trying to take this right around the world just on solar power? What were the templates that they had to work with? Or was this from scratch? Um, they knew that the plane had to be extremely lightweight, but also extremely large um, in order to capture as much sunlight as possible. In terms of 
prototypes, there really wasn't much. There have been solar-powered aircraft before, but unmanned largely. Um, to have a manned aircraft required, of course, oxygen tanks, lots of weight. They did look to gliders that we have today. This airplane, it's got the wingspan of a 747 jet, and yet the weight of a, a car, it really has an enormous ability to glide, which helps the airplane get through the night. Mm. So during the day, it climbs up to 28,000 feet and then kind of slowly glides down through the night, saving energy. And in the morning, uh, in these ocean crossings, which are the most dangerous, there's like 10% left in the battery. And if we all have cell phones, we know how uh, nervous we get when we're down to 10% left. Yeah, yeah, but instead of your phone going clunk out, they're in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's yeah. a life. Yeah. yeah. And the, you know, when they went into it, uh, they knew that there was no real template. Right. And that they're trying to do something that had never been done before. Yeah, well, so. that, that is it, isn't it? If you're trying something you never, nobody's ever done before, you're doing something new. <laughs> and they, they tried to get airplane manufacturers, whether it be Boeing or other people, I don't know exactly who they went to, but yeah. to actually take it on board in, in internally in their R&D and to work with existing manufacturers. And they said it was too crazy. Hmm. It was just too difficult. The plane would be too light, too unwieldy, too vulnerable, too dangerous. Yeah, it does look uh, vulnerable. It mm. does look dangerous. It looks like one breeze would just snap the thing in half <laughs> like a cracker. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they uh, really some midweight turbulence will will snap the wings in half, and they knew that that was a possibility. And uh, also on the ground, you know, the closer you get to the ground, the more dangerous it is that you, you hit something. Mm. So landings were particularly dangerous, and they had a ground team that had to actually catch the plane um, and, and hold on to the plane when there were heavy gusts of wind so that the wings didn't just, uh, you know, tip over and, and yeah. shatter. Yeah. And they, uh, they did get very close to losing the plane. There were times when it, it really was right on the edge and, and uh, there were certainly moments out there where you're filming and you're thinking, wow, is this the end of the story? Uh, okay, enough about them for the moment. <laughs> how, how did you two attach yourselves, find yourselves as, I, I suspect, the exclusive coverage to make a documentary about this? It took some trust building in the beginning. Uh, we, we actually cold emailed them. We read a story about uh, two Swiss guys and their team who had been working for over a decade to uh, build this plane and fly it around the world. And we thought, wow, this is a remarkable story and potentially a piece of history that we wanted to, to capture. And so we emailed them and three months later, we started a dialogue. Three months later, we were in Switzerland taking a risk, buying the, the airfare to go and meet them and see the plane and say, is this are they for real? Is this plane for real? And them to suss us out as That's well. That's a signal of your commitment too, though. It would have impressed, I hope. Yeah, yeah, in many ways. I mean, that was a big decision to go. I mean, you know, we're documentary filmmakers, so we don't have a big a big budget to just fly around and find stories. So. Or any budget in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a big commitment. And I think we got to the point with them where... It's like, okay, it's, it's worth taking that leap of faith and, and paying our way over to Switzerland and meeting yeah. with them. And that was the beginning of, yeah, three and a half years. And, yeah. What, what's been your documentary background uh, before doing this? Quinn and I go back about 12 years. And we started working, working together in San Francisco on a project and then had the opportunity 
to go out on our own. So we started a company together and we've been going strong ever since. So uh -huh. it's been very much about um, collaborative filmmaking. Is this the sort of thing you do? Yeah. Yeah, we've done a lot of history documentaries, um, science documentaries and environmental documentaries. We've done one about uh, adaptation of Jared Diamond's book Collapse. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, um, you know so a two, two hours uh, adaptation of that for National Geographic, um, which looked at environmental impacts throughout history and wow. how that led to the collapse of civilizations. We went forward, we went back, we looked yeah. at the future, we looked at the present, and we interwove all those things. Yeah, and then another one about um, a photographer, James Baylog, who's uh, tracking melting ice sheets and glaciers and that sort of thing. So we have a, a real passion for environmental stories. And this particular one really struck us, struck a chord with us because it was a really positive message of people getting together, collaborating to, mm. to do something to tackle the problem of, of climate change. As I said in the introduction, it may well be something we look back on as important. It, all the criticisms are valid. This is not a practical thing whatsoever. It's ridiculous, but as they say, you've got to try. You've got to start somewhere. Well, they probably said that about the Wright brothers too. Yeah. So yeah. it's really interesting what you say about, and I think that's our our feeling was that we were looking at this as a documentary that very well may be 30 years from now much more important than maybe it is mm. even in this moment because you don't really realize these moments in history, but... We felt it was a point in history that really needed to be told and to be told in a really personal, human way that gets to the heart of what people were grappling with in terms yeah. of doing things differently. Yeah. They're interesting characters. Just to put people in the bit of the picture, this massive, weird-looking plane just on solar power circumnavigating the world. The conditions on board, I mean, weight is everything isn't it? Let's go through some of the practical things and, and um, what was actually going on. Two pilots, so they shared, you don't have two pilots on at once, one would follow the other and if they were the better one, you know, they, they'd do the next leg, that sort of thing. Um, but just having a look at the conditions on board, it, there can be no luxuries because every, it's, it's on the edge anyway, isn't it? They had a stuffed animal. Yeah. And, and, some, and some coffee. Yes. There and, were some things I thought they should, should have jettisoned. But that's about it. Yeah. They didn't have heat. You know, they couldn't really heat the cabin. And how high were they? Or pressure. Or pressure. Yeah. Uh, they were at, they would go up to 28,000 feet each day. So that's the only thing you're going to bang into is Everest. Yeah, exactly. It's the height of Everest and uh, no pressure, no, no um, heat, as Noel said. So they would have to put on huge expedition parkas to be up there. And after 12,000 feet, they'd have to be on oxygen, which is really taxing to be on it for a long period of time. Mm. It's not air. People think oxygen, you'll be fine. Right. It's not air, is no. it? You re react differently. Yeah, and, it, and they, the guys on the ground in Mission Control really had to monitor oxygen saturation in their blood constantly mm. and that sort of thing to avoid some serious conditions. But it really was um, these ocean flights. This is really the crux of it for the story where flying from Asia to Hawaii, it's a five-day solo flight. So for a pilot, you know, they can't sleep more than 20 minutes at a time. And so that's cumulatively, that might add up to about three hours over a 24-hour period times five. So you can imagine what that's like.
It's um, not recommended for commercial pilots. No, <laughs> certainly not. Yeah. yeah. No, but they're both, I think, you know, they shared, they're very different people. Aren't they? One's, one's an entrepreneur, uh, jet fighter pilot. We're talking um, about the two pilots. Yeah, this is Andre, and then Bertrand basically is a psychiatrist but comes from a long line of explorers, very famous ones oh. um, in Europe. But they shared in this love of going into the unknown, of doing something different, of doing something groundbreaking, um, and particularly given that it has a purpose that they believed in. Yeah. Um, in terms of the future. Uh, so that's kind of what they bonded over oh. in many ways. That was their, their real connection was this love of adventure, but it's more than an adventure because it's, it's exploration. It, yeah. it's, it's adventure with a real purpose. Yeah. Oh, that's all tremendous stuff. I just want to know how fast the plane goes before we get onto some of the more of the serious operations. How fast <laughs> does the damn thing go? Five miles an hour? Sometimes backwards in a yeah, strong head. I would, I would assume so, but yeah. let's say it's still, still conditions. How far, do you know how fast it goes? About yeah. 30 miles per hour. A little, little more than that. Uh, yeah. Four, oh. four, 60, I'd say 60 kilometers per hour average speed. It could go faster depending on tailwinds or headwinds and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's extremely slow, which makes it a hazard up in the air for other air, you know, jets that go 500 miles an hour. So there was a whole air traffic control team that had to coordinate with all the airports um, to make sure there are no collisions yeah. and all of that. And international cooperation. They land in Burma. And I used the word Burma on purpose there. Um, it's, it's hard to get stuff done there. And you need quite a bit of cooperation. Yeah, well, they joke about... I mean, you followed them everywhere, so you have experienced this. It took months and months of negotiations with each of the governments to get cleared through the airspace and to land um, with at the airports. I mean, they're flying into JFK in New York City and landing there. It's a good look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. They can fly over the Statue of Liberty. It's, it's lovely, but, it, you know, to find the exact time where they can slot in mm. in between all of that air traffic, you know, that's, that's a pain in the butt. And then other... Uh, you, uh, governments, you know, had military zones that were really tricky to get around. Yeah. You, you can imagine, you know, some air traffic controller in China and he gets the call and it's like he's got all these jumbo jets flying in at yeah. God knows what speed and suddenly there's this yeah. very strange bird going 30 miles per hour, and which think, is just a nightmare. You it's think the like, pilot's going, hurry up, and they each have a controller. It's, it's good yeah, it's land. like a, a go-kart on the highway, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Well, um, then a salute to the cooperation that went on because a lot of people have no skin in this fight, do they? Yeah, they shut things down for this plane. The whole world really yeah. took a stop, a time out from their daily lives, their daily pace, mm. to appreciate something that was the future, but an inconvenient future. Okay. We'll get to the, the moral side of it and the human story, but I do like some of the technical things. Getting rid of this weight. Um, if you look at Formula One, there aren't any fat drivers. They dieted for this. Didn't cut their hair. Did they cut their toenails? I mean, everything <laughs> matters, doesn't it? Every last thing uh, in, in weight reduction. But, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, why not get a really, really small person? Bertrand is, is, is pretty petite, actually. Is he? Yeah, he's, yeah, and they're both very fit. And I think, uh, actually, Andre joked in the, uh, the film yeah. that he, he lost some kilos in the months leading up to this. But, right. I mean, it starts with the 
the materials of the plane itself. I mean, they've got carbon fiber as thin as a piece of paper and solar cells that are extremely thin. Um, and, and you can poke your finger through it. So, you know, it's it's everything's on the edge. Okay. Everything weight-wise is on the edge. And yes, the pilots did as much as they could. And even, I remember, extra memory cards, they were weighing what that would be for the GoPros yeah. that were on board. Yeah. You know, and they couldn't take extra memory cards because that was, and we all know that those are, you know, featherweight. Yeah, yeah, but it all adds up. It does, yeah. Yeah, yeah but your, your question also gets to another level. Why these guys? Why not put yeah. somebody that weighed like, like a jockey, yeah. you know, in a horse race? Because it, it took something extra and something special. They really are quite special yeah. as human beings. And it's hard beings. to find small versions they're, of very special things. Yeah, they're risking their life. It's yeah. not like a part you can go find and put in. And they, they without that investment of 13 years, without mm. all of that, and they did have a test pilot um, who probably could fly it as well as anybody, but... The more important thing was getting across the ocean, flying five days and five nights, which is the longest solo flight in history. Oh. And they're risking their lives. The, you know, aside from the two of them having gone through all that, and, you know, as they would say, I mean, they crossed the point of no return, in, in essence, of going, making that ocean crossing. Oh of making that kind of ultimate risk mm. for something that they believed in. And that really is not something that you can you can package in any particular body type. That and, was, yeah, oh, no, I was just going to say, and, you know, the mental toughness that it takes to, to do this, you know, um, and Bertrand, who envisioned this, 13 years prior, now 15 years or so, you know, he had flown around the world in a hot air balloon, spent 21 days up there uh, with Brian Green, uh, his partner at the time, worked over a decade to bring this to fruition. And so he was determined. He's fierce and determined. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is why they, they were successful and why he's successful also as a pilot. Mm. Um, and then Andre, as a pilot, brings a different kind of mental toughness as a, a jet fighter pilot and also yo yogi, you know, who, mm. who can kind of calm himself and has done a lot of training in that regard. Yeah, they are the alpha type. They are the risk-taking type. These are special people and the pioneers tend to be. But that's one of the most interesting interesting dynamics in the movie it's called point of no return and that is the ethos and philosophy of engineers versus the leaders of the mm. project and that's where the tension really happens the engineers are they are right in the real world they are right and they didn't take kindly to their efforts and warnings being ignored for the sake of we've got to do this it's a really interesting dynamic isn't it yeah it is um quinn quinn was in the middle of that at mission control with the engineers and oh. um talks a lot about how intense that is so she should answer that one but i think that's that's really true I, in context though engineers want a level of safety that that maybe never would have happened so the decision on the part of the pilots, and maybe they saw this coming, is that they may have to, only they can put their life on the line. Yeah, but the engineers feel responsible, don't they? Uh, they're part of the team, so effectively they had to wash their hands of it in that scene. It's quite mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah, it's really looking at this kind of interesting social experiment with yeah. all of these different um, 
personality types and different backgrounds and their comfort level with risk. And also yeah. the time to make the decision whether to be bold and brave and go ahead or turn around and come back. The clock is ticking. You have to make the decision. And it, you know, it comes, we've got 20 minutes to make this decision. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah tensions were very high. Adrenaline was running. And uh, you, they, everyone was very stressed out by this because this was a, a, a mid-air decision that everyone had to make. And the pilot's life was seriously on the line. Uh, we don't want to give too much away. No. But uh, the engineers, are they're trying to do their job. Their job is to keep the pilot safe and to have the plane not shatter into pieces, which yeah. was a real vi uh, viable possibility as and well. they do have to wash their hands of it, don't they, if, the, if that decision is made? It's, yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, it's... They don't want it on their heads right. as engineers that somebody died because they didn't do their job yeah. because their job is to keep them safe. Yeah. And so when they're past their comfort zone, um, it's, it's not just professional, it's deeply personal because yeah. mm -hmm. as one of them says in the movie, they would have to live with that for the rest of their life as well. Mm -hmm. And these engineers also, it's not just the two pilots that were committed for 13 years. A lot of these guys worked for 10 years as well. They're the ones who screwed in some of the bolts and built the plane. They have an emotional connection to the plane, too. They don't want to see that, you know, break into pieces. And they certainly don't want their friend, you know, of 10 years of working together to, to die. So it becomes really emotional. And as you said, in this very crunched timeline, mm. when it all plays out. How much easier would it be to do today? Hmm, two years later? That's a good question. A little bit. Yeah. If you're doing it for the first time, it's still really hard. The yeah. margins would still be pretty tight. Mm. Maybe they would have a little bit more. Maybe instead of, you know, 45 minutes left on your cell phone and you got to make that call to save your life, um, maybe it would be an hour, hour and 15. But we're kind of guessing there. Yeah. Um, but the whole point is to inspire a leap in technology in the same way that the Wright brothers inspired a leap in technology and flight and the way fossil fuels inspired a leap in automobiles and everything else in our lives that, that you know, mm. made everything possible. They're trying to inspire a fundamental change. It's a new industrial revolution that we're looking for, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, ho I hope it can happen. Yeah, yeah it's already starting. Um, you know, everyone thinks of this as just kind of solar because it had solar panels on it. But the four engines were all electric engines that are 97% efficient compared to a combustion engine that l mm. loses a ton through heat loss. Um, and so... There's big companies like Airbus and Boeing that are working on electric fleets and smaller startups as well. There's electric helicopters that are being developed, flying taxis, Uber, you know, all of these companies that are getting in on this because it makes sense. It's, it's, it's not producing CO2 and it's quieter, it's cheaper potentially as well for short distances. You know, it's starting small in terms of, you know, um, commuter flights, maybe Wellington to Auckland or LA, San Francisco, but we'll certainly be seeing electric flights with no petrol gas being used um, in coming decades. Mm. I really hope so. I hope we don't find some sort of road bump like unforeseen complexities. It's happened before with technical revolutions. You could say that the height of big tech 
1969 and downhill since then. Went to the moon, biggest rocket. Mm. Mm-hmm. Beatles released Abbey Road. Um, <laughs> the hovercraft, yeah. uh, supersonic flight, the Concorde. That was the, going to be the beginning. For all those things, it was the end. Yeah. Well, hopefully the next 50 years we'll have another phase like that. Um, but it you... never, that sort of technology never went f- f- further on. It didn't. It was, you know, that big technology that found unforeseen complexities. So it raises, well, it raises an interesting question, though. It's like, why not? Yeah. yeah. Have we become true. safer? And this kind of gets at the heart of what was going on in that control room is yeah. that maybe we're, we're too, as human beings, we're becoming safer and safer. And, you know, we have insurance companies. And we have all these things that want life to be safe yeah. and to not change, you know. And so this, this adventure really is a throwback to that era that you're talking about where people weren't quite so afraid to break the mold, to try something mm. different. It's per- outside of health and safety regulations, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah. And and there's still roadblocks now, just on a practical level. Battery storage is the big issue in mm. terms of why they can't have a larger payload, more weight on board. And that's issue with the grid um, and, you know, transmitting renewables. So we got, we have to have like a major breakthrough in batteries to make them a lot more effective yeah. to, to really have a, a, a major revolution. And to make them, to have it efficient to produce those batteries in the first place because sure. otherwise you're shoveling water with a pitchfork. <laughs> yeah. It's beautifully filmed as well and there's some exquisite footage. How did you get the outside of the craft shots? Um, there were a number of ways. Uh, they they had integrated GoPros into the plane, so that okay. that part of it was already kind of in the plan. Because it feels like I'm a bird. Sometimes. Yeah, and then we did as much helicopter work as we could. Oh. Um, you can't follow them across an ocean, but you can follow them a ways and then come back. Yeah. Um, so at key moments like that, we were trying to get as much as we could to the, get that kind of imagery you know, cover it from every angle mm. possible. And that's both from a story point of view and from a visual point of view. So it's it's very much also a film made from two perspectives. Um, Quinn and I shooting two sides of a story on mm. opposite sides of the world and really seeing that dynamic between those two sides in the same way that you would you know, want to cover an Apollo mission. So oh. you want cameras in, in the rocket and in the spacecraft and, and you want and you want to be at you want to be at mission control <laughs> yeah. where all that's going down to. So um and smoking control. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Everyone had a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh you're showing this at the United Nations. We are. Yeah, well, we just got the news in uh, this morning, final confirmation, which we're really excited about. Uh, it's going to be in a session in New York in the headquarters, part of their science, technology, and innovation forum coming up in uh, on World Environment Day or around a World Environment Day. So, Great. Well, I hope the future does look back at this as a landmark thing. It would be marvelous. We just don't know yet, do we? But we've, as they say, someone's got to try. <laughs> Point of no return. Lovely documentary. Thank you very much. <laughs> We've been speaking to the makers, Noel Dockstatter and Quinn Canale. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Pam. Really enjoyed it. And when you see the state of the world today, it is a crime not to try something.
not to try to increase quality of life on this planet. We love to fly. For others, it's in art, in science, in the community. But we have to try. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. After new sport and weather at 11, an outsider tale with Gerard Hindmarsh. This one fell off the archives, but we ma managed to find it. it was behind the piano and she'll be going up for everyone to enjoy for eternity. It's an amazing story of the Raiatehi fire, 1918. It's kind of disappeared into the white noise of history a bit. She'll be remembered. It clouded over Wellington and that's miles away from Raiatehi. It was a hellish thing.